Psalm 51, it's on the inside of your insert, the gift of true repentance. Could I ask you to stand one time for reading a few sentences out of this? I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll read through verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 51, the superscription is to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Psalm 51 is this classic text in the scripture on repentance. I don't know if it's still true, but it was up to a few years ago in my hometown about this time of year when kids are heading back to school, the carnival comes to town. And also, we, we have what's called Fall Festival Days in the little town of Bushnell, Illinois, where at the Veterans Park we have all kinds of games. And one of those games, one of those competitions, is a greased pig contest. Anybody here, by a show of hands, ever participated in a greased pig contest? One? Okay. My brother, Ross Bailey. <laughs> what is a greased pig contest? Well, it probably doesn't happen in places like Indianapolis. And because of animal rights activists, it may not happen anywhere now, and maybe for good reason. But a farmer will bring a medium-sized pig into town, and a big fence is set up. And the farmer will lather that pig up with some form of grease and set it loose in this pen that is filled also with, say, I don't know, 25 or 50, 8 to 10-year-olds. And uh, the goal is to catch and trap and pin that grease pig, I think, for probably about 10 seconds or so. And if you, if you are successful in pinning that greased pig, you get like 100 bucks. Right? You may not know this. A pig does not want to be caught by 50 nine-year-olds. And pigs are remarkably strong. And will, that pig, when released, will fight for his life. He will bite and kip and kick and buck and wiggle and try all that he can to keep from being caught. It doesn't want to be caught. It doesn't want to be pinned. It will exert all of its energy so it will not have to submit to a 10-year-old and be trapped by a 10-year-old. Last week, we began looking at Psalm 51, this classic text on being caught and response to being caught and pinned, if you will, by the Spirit of God in our own sin being exposed. Which comes when we, that, that response in Psalm 51 comes after we stop resisting the corrective work of God in our life and begin to embrace it. 
And we are looking at Psalm 51 as we do every week, but it's good to remind us, especially when we're preaching from the Old Testament, that we are doing this in light of the communion table. We are heading to the communion table in a few minutes. Here pictured for us the life, death, resurrection, and now ascended power of Jesus, where he he secures for us in his death our forgiveness, and in his resurrection power ascended to the right hand of God, stands ready and willing to generously give Holy Spirit power for relational renewal with him. That's what's celebrated in communion. That's what we go and we take to ourselves. And that's the backdrop of every text, including Psalm 51. And the, maybe the paradox or the joyful irony of repentance, and I don't know if this is especially helpful for Westerners or just humans, is that the result of being exposed or caught, shown deficient, Lacking, sinful, delinquent, falling short of our, however we want to say it, falling short of our created purpose before God, whether in massive ways or small ways, the result of that, if engaged faithfully, is, ironically, joy, freedom, hope. If we engage it honestly, true repentance, as we saw last week and this week, is a gift of grace. True repentance is a gift of grace that leads us out of hiding into joy, into freedom, into hope. Even though we like that squealing pig and the Bushnell Fall Festival's Day, Fall Festival days, do not want trapped, pinned, exposed, stopped. Psalm 51, if you remember, uh, and, and Dustin helpfully referred to this in his prayer, is in the context of David's sin with Bathsheba. I spent extended time last week. I'm not going to go into that. Just summarize it by saying David, the king at the time, severely and treacherously abused his power as king to violate a woman in his kingdom, commit sexual uh, infidelity against his own wife with Bathsheba, against Bathsheba, and to cover it up orchestrated the death of her husband Uriah, who was one of his loyal uh, palace guards. He, he was guilty of adultery, of abuse of power, of murder, of lying. He had sinned against his wife Bathsheba, Uriah, the people he was supposed to lead. It was a big deal. And the lesson of Psalm 51, though, is not that repentance this type of repentance, I'm popping a little bit. Can, I don't know if that can be fixed or not, but maybe bring me down and let me go loud. That repentance is not something that is appropriate only in situations of this type of gravity, but that repentance is something that is uh, available even in situations with this much gravity. So it's not just reserved for when you've killed someone and betrayed everything you know, but that repentance is even available for that and everything else also. So for every sin, whether that is something we consider massive or less, the the antidote, the, the response, the appropriate response to restore relationship with God is repentance, and that's what Psalm 51 is about. And last week we saw what we call the shape of repentance, which essentially is David saying, you are, Lord, I'm coming because you are something. You are gracious. Not because of me. I got nothing in my hands. 
but you are gracious and therefore I'm coming to you. And then I own it all. I own all of my sin. I'm not making excuses. I'm not rounding off the edges. I'm not airbrushing this at all. I own everything. You were right. I am wrong. I own it all. And now I need you to act. I need you to do something. This isn't like talk therapy, even though it's talk therapy is fine. God, I need you to do something. And we see as a result of God doing something, what bring, comes into our life is this joy, freedom, and hope. And this repentance should be, I think, a normal thing in our life. A normal thing. The famous reformer Martin Luther said in his first of his 95 theses, which began the Protestant Reformation, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ called us to repent, he willed that all of life be one of repentance. It's a normal thing. Why is that normal? If you turn over to the back of your insert, there's one little verse here from Revelation 3.19. This is summarizing lots of other verses in the Scripture, but Jesus, this is the voice of Jesus here, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, or I correct and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I'm, I, I correct you because... I love you. I love you. Why, if you have children, why do you correct your children? I mean, it makes your life easier too, but because you love them. You love them. Our youngest is playing football, and we had a scrimmage on Friday night, and three teams were there. It was this round-robin scrimmage, and they, had, they would play for a quarter, and the coaches would get together and say, not this, but this, not this, but this, and then film study on Saturday morning, tearing it apart, looking at these things, correcting the players and correcting the plays. Why? Because they dislike the players? No. Because they're seeking for those players to move into the fullness of what they could have. And so there's correction that's brought because of concern and care for them. The Lord brings correction to his people because he loves us, and we have lots of opportunity for correction. But we don't have to respond to it well. We can respond to the Lord's correction poorly. That next uh, section down under that Revelation passage from 2 Corinthians 7 teaches us that we can go one of two ways when we're corrected. So when, when God brings correction into our life, either through his spirit and word or through another person or through circumstances, we can enter into what he calls a godly grief that leads us to repentance or a worldly grief. Paul has written this a letter to the church in Corinth challenging them on their sin. And he writes this, and it's in there, 2 Corinthians 7, 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I, I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So what this is saying is when God brings correction into our life, there's a godly grief on the other side of which is salvation without regret. That's joy. That's freedom. That's like there's a, a, a sense of ease before God on the other side of that. But there could be a worldly grief, which brings only what he calls death, which is misery, right? Misery, which is grieving over the effects of what we've done. And basically that's the effects upon us. So, the shape of repentance, you are, God. I'm coming because of you. You're merciful and gracious. I own everything, and I need you to act. And that acting is what produces this in us. So, so, so starting in verse 7, first we see uh, <clears throat> maybe what we'll call an anticipated joy 
in restoration. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop. That is Old Testament, old language. Hyssop is a branch of a plant. Referring to an Old Testament practice, when, uh, when somebody had a skin disease, they were put outside the camp for a time so they weren't, wouldn't be contagious, and the priest would have to go uh, in, inspect them to see if they were contagious so, that, so they could come back in. This is, that was a pastor's job in the Old Testament. I'm so glad I don't live then. But, uh, um, and if they were clean, if that skin disease had passed, had gone away, he, the, the priest would symbolically uh, shake water on them with a hyssop branch, signifying that something has gone away. Something has passed, and they have access back again. Something has happened. Something has ended. In forgiveness... God removes something. Right? It's not that he just says, okay, fine. You can, okay, we're fine. We're good, fine. Whatever, I'll put up with you again. It's that he actually removes something from us. He actually, there's a transaction where he removes what theologians call the pollution of our sin. And now on this side of the cross, of course, we see clearly what David only saw in shadows. We know passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says God made him Christ. God made Christ who knew no sin. Jesus had no personal connection with sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's this great exchange of the gospel. Christ takes on the penalty of our sin so that we may take on the status of being a righteous son or daughter of God. So that in Christ, if you're in Christ, it is as if when God looks at you, he sees you, but he sees you as Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is yours permanently and forever as a status, and therefore the penalty of sin is completely, completely washed away in Christ. And we are, as Colossians 1 says, we're presented before him holy and blameless. So that's our, that's our real status. But in our life, we turn away in our practice from that real status. And when we do that, that status isn't threatened. Right? When we sin, our status of being a son or daughter of God and God's favor toward us is not threatened. It does not change. His disposition to us does not change in that respect. But we, repentance is simply the turning back to God for relational restoration when we've turned away. So he says, purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8. Here David makes an admission that the state of non-confession, we all know this. When we, we're in that spot where like, we know that we've sinned and we're in that place of hiding, pressing it down. This is where David's like, maybe, if, maybe I've gotten away with it, right? That's a miserable few weeks, miserable few months. And David's like, this is a miserable situation. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What's he mean? God didn't literally break David's bones. It's, a, it's symbolic language for, I'm pretty miserable here, right? He picks it up in Psalm 32. We're not going to read it, but David's communicating that we can be miserable in a state of being out of fellowship with God when we've sinned and turned away from Him. We can be miserable 
because of our pride and independence from God. And he lets me feel that misery. And that's an act of love if it leads me back to him. Another way to say it is something like this. God, at times for us, is a God of bone-crushing mercy. God is a God of bone-crushing mercy. He is willing to let us feel the weight of our sin and the misery of trying to do life apart from him so that it leads us back to him. So maybe, as application, just reflection, I'm not saying this is more of a question, not a declaration. Can it be possible that in your life right now, in my life right now, some of the personal misery, some of the relational misery, perhaps some of the emotional or financial or even physical misery in our life, Could it be connected or deeply rooted in our unwillingness to deal with unconfessed and unaddressed sin before the Lord? I'm not giving you a prescription. I'm saying, and I'm not saying that's always the case, but if we don't ever consider it, we we have to know that we are missing what the Scripture teaches. God lets us be miserable sometimes, so it leads us back to Him. He loves us. It doesn't... He doesn't delight in our misery, but he will use it in return to him. And I would just say, like, in a group this size, like, it's not possible for me to read words like that or say that last phrase and somebody not be convicted. (laughs) I get that. If that's you, you know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit of the living God saying, I'm beckoning you to joy. Would you deal with whatever you are suppressing right now? Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Oh, by the way, on this misery thing, let me go one more thing. My experience in my own life, and I've worked with enough people to know this, we often find other things to attach the, the reason for the misery to. Like we have misery in part because of our own sin, but then we're like, yeah, but it's his fault. Like this, it's the other person's reason. Or uh, this, the... The political climate. We're so tribalized. That's why I'm, okay, fine, but maybe look in the mirror. Or this group or this ideology. All those things may, like, be unpleasant, but let's first start by actually dealing with God about something he might be exposing in our own life, and then we can talk about the other things. Okay, verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Hide your face from my sin. The, The face of God has to do with his pleasure. And so what David's here talking about is God's favor and delight fully resting on him again. His smile, his countenance resting on him and not turn it all toward a sin. Why? Because God's done something. He's blotted out. That means he's erased the transgression. That's the work. And again, on this side of the cross, that is the complete work of Jesus in our life. That's why he died, to blot out our transgression so the favor and smile of God may rest on us. So there's a relational joy with God and maybe what we call a personal joy in his own person. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So these aren't please 
you know, to try to convince God to do something God doesn't want to do. Right? Is rather saying, do what you do, Lord, because of who you are. It's already been stated in verse 1. He's, because of your steadfast love and abundant mercy, this is why I'm coming to you. Now, do what you do because of who you are. Created me a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give me a, the experiential not, uh, experience that I'm empowered to pursue you again. I'm clean. I'm renewed in you. Give, the, give me the experience of a sense of your presence. He's asking for this. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, let me bracket that one and say, in the Old Testament, the understanding of the Spirit was different than the New Testament. And I think we've mentioned this several times, but in the Psalms, most of the Psalms are in parallel verse, so one part of the verse interprets the other. So when it says in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, those basically are the same thing. So the presence of the Spirit is a sense of God's presence with him. And in David, you know, David was anointed by the Spirit for kingly leadership, so he could also be saying, please don't take the kingship from me. Then he's like, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore the joy of my salvation. So I think this is a great thing to pray often. Um, taking joy in God. Do you know that? Taking joy in God is a command in the Scripture. Where every time it says rejoice, that's a call. That's a command. In a post-Freudian like Freudian psychological age, it's like we can only feel joy if it sort of bubbles up in us. Like, okay, well, that's only been thought about for like 100 years. Biblically, it's like you can actually take joy, rejoice, be thankful, give thanks, fight for joy. And this is one of the ways here that David's fighting for joy. He's like, Lord, restore my joy. Help me to grab hold of this thing. And uh, so this is just a simple application, not really from this text, but it is stupidly effective, I find. Ask for God to restore the joy of your salvation. You know what he normally does? Restores, I, he restores joy. If you're, if you're kind of slow in your spiritual life, so, oh, the Lord's, I feel he's kind of distant and whatever, yada, yada, yada. Here's a great response. Lord, please restore the joy of my salvation. Why don't you ask that? And keep asking that until he does. Again, not in this text, but it, I've found this to be stupidly effective in my own life. Like, it's just such a short thing to ask and keep asking. And God's like, what's he going to say? No, I want you to be miserable in your salvation. No, restore the joy to my salvation. Now, we've got to be prepared that he may open up, you know, places where we need his mercy. And that's painful, but it's good. All this is saying, I think, this whole restore to me, creating me a clean heart, David is in some ways speaking to his own soul, Lord, I want to be convinced of this, that there is not an asterisk by my name with you. You know an asterisk? Everybody calls it an asterisk. I don't know why. It's an asterisk. That's how you actually say the word. Uh, shift eight on your keyboard, asterisk. Um, it's a sign in a written text that there is, there's more data not written right there. There's more data. There's, a, there's left out data. David's saying, I don't want an asterisk in your book. Like, oh, it's David, but you know David. He did all this. I want to have a sense of cleansing. If you're a baseball fan, you know that in the all-time home run leader records, there's names like Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa that often have 
asterisks by their name. Why? Because they cheated using steroids. And so they're like, okay, technically there, he's got the most home runs, but he cheated, right? The gospel means there's no asterisk with the Lord. When we repent, we are cleansed because of the work of Jesus. And in Christ, there is no qualifier. And so, therefore, I want to press this into us. We, guys, work by the power of the Spirit to be a community that doesn't place asterisks by each other's names. When somebody has been cleansed of the Lord, who are we to say it's not sufficient? So we look at each other. Now, we want to be smart and realize people have different sin tendencies and weaknesses, so not throw those weaknesses in each other's face and create temptation for people, but to treat people authentically like they've been cleansed by Jesus because they have. A community of flawed people who have been loved by a flawless Savior who are therefore loving each other in our flawedness. And not, that's not all. I would say, and this is a strong word, but personally, we personally have an obligation once we have repented to leave it behind. If we've repented of something, keep dragging the guilt of what we've done oh, for, with us throughout our life, it is a way of saying, I still have to deal with this, and Jesus isn't sufficient to deal with it. And we, I think Christians should be so free after we've repented that somebody might say, well, aren't you taking this seriously? Don't you remember what you did? Isn't it weighty to you? And the response from us should be, oh, it's very weighty to me. But there is something more weighty, that Christ has dealt with it, and I am free. So if that's you, you may have done something, you're dragging it around for years, the guilt of it. Friend, friend, be free. Be free. There is a freedom there. Now, this is hard if you, are, if you grew up in an emotionally manipulative home. That's super hard, I know. It's no less true, but it's super hard. I get it. There is a freedom in humility, a freedom from what we might call personal mission. Verse 13, then, after all this, you might expect David to say, then I'll slink away into the background and I'll just be happy to have my own little, you know, corner. Nope. Then I will teach transgressors like me your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness and your deliverance of me. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for cleansing my sin. So teaching others, singing, declaring praise. Scripture here, I think, is teaching us that true repentance leads to a sense of winsomeness and joyfulness and effectiveness interpersonally in what we might call personal ministry. That what makes us effective for Christ with other people is not being impressive. It's not being gifted. It's, it's not being special. It's not having some deep intellect or wisdom. What makes us effective, what catalyzes personal ministry, effectiveness for Christ in other people, with other people, is being personally acquainted with his mercy in our own life. And that only comes on the other side of confession and repentance and joyful reception and forgiveness. And then we have 
you know, and then we're coming from a place of honesty and humility and, and non-competitiveness personally. And I'm saying this to you as a chief offender. I want to appear impressive, articulate, smart. None of that is effective for personal ministry. None of it. So we're, we, we're, then we're not taking ourselves so seriously, and we have something to say. Namely, can you believe how good God is? Look what he's done for me. And I'm pretty jacked up, and look what he's done for me. I can't believe it. I've got something to say. And good news is easy to share. I, several years ago, we had a house on Washington Street, the church. It was our office. We called it a ministry center. It was a uh, it, it, was lots of th- it was lots of things over the years. None of them particularly effective. It's just this way it was. Um, but it was a drop-in shelter for a while, a food pantry. And one day, and I can't remember, somebody was, I can't remember if it was Bob Schultz or Jeb Gaither. A guy knocked on the door, and his name was Ron. He'd been in prison. He got out of prison, and he was staying at this really seedy dive motel, the Indy East Motel, just a couple doors down from the ministry center. I don't know if you remember the Indy East Motel. It's like something straight out of third world country. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's torn down now. Um, and he's like, I just need some food. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for pay me, pay for the hotel room. He said, I just need some food. I'm like, well, I can help you there. I'm not going to give you any cash, but I'll give you money or give you, give you food. Not gonna give you, I'll just give you my credit card. No, uh, I'm not going to give you any cash, but I give you food. And I just, I pr- gave him some food, prayed with him and he left. And 20 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. And I just looked back at my notes. It was Ron and seven other men. Why? He'd gone to the hotel. They're like, where did you get that food? They're like, the guy down the street, he was giving food out for free. And they came and asked for free food. Now, I was young. I gave it to him. I don't know if I'd do that now. But nonetheless, um, I told him. I gave it to them. I said, now, don't tell anybody else because I don't have any other food. Right? What does the Lord say? Tell everybody. There's more where that came from. The good news that you experience in receiving my mercy, there's, it's full. Christ died. There's plenty. Tell everybody what, what I've done for you. And then say, if you want some. The old evangelist in our denomination from the last generation, Jack Miller, said, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I just love that picture. Look, I don't... I didn't make the bread. I didn't buy the bread. Some dude gave me the bread. Can you believe that? And he's got a lot of bread. Would you like some bread? I would like some bread. Well, let me show you where to find bread. That's all evangelism is. There's a ton of freedom, especially if you believe that it doesn't have to come in a perfect package. Maybe especially if the imperfection of the package is part of the effectiveness of the presentation. Look at me. Can you believe that God has forgiven this? Can you? There's mercy. There's mercy for you. You may not sin like I do, but I need it just as much as you do. Would you like to know where it is? That's all evangelism is. In the gospel, two things come together. Our lack and need and God's abundance. If we only see our lack and need, what we will have is sort of a self-loathing and joylessness. Oh, my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin. If we only see God's abundance, what we have is sort of like an indulgent thanklessness. Oh, God forgives. That's what he does. Yay. Nope, we see both things together. When we see both our need and God's abundance, what we have is joy and freedom. It really is need, and he really did act on it, and I really am free. And there's a freedom before the Lord. Verse 16, 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's not saying God doesn't want sacrifice in that old system, right? The old sacrificial system. What he's saying is, if it's done with a heart that's not thankful or joyful, it's kind of a useless, it's a useless activity. Today we might say that acts of love and sacrifice and devotion without a heart that's right before God is a useless activity. With a prideful and arrogant heart is a useless activity. So, sort of in the, in the Christian world, right, the, I'm going to totally stereotype, but I'm preaching, so I can do that. Um, the fundamentalist who is really concerned with devotion to God and is therefore judgmental to everybody else and thinks they're earning their way with God, it simply would say, uh, that's, God doesn't delight in that. It's the right thing, but it's not delighted in. The more progressive Christian who is all concerned about justice and hostile and judging other people who don't act just like they do, God doesn't delight in that. It might be the right thing, but it's not delighted in by God. Now, he, may, he doesn't love them any less, but just the activity is it's a useless activity. What does he delight in? This is so much clearer in the light of Jesus. What grand act of devotion and service to God does God delight in? In us. Ready? What grand act of devotion and service to God does God delight in, in us? It is our simple enjoyment of his grand act of service and devotion to us in Christ. What is a broken and contrite heart? Not one that's low and beating themselves up and can't move and is depressed like that. One that simply says, I need mercy. And that's exactly what's provided for me in Jesus over and over and over again. And that makes something like Psalm 139 possible. I put this at the top of your insert. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. This is from the the lips of David as well. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, show me, lead me through repentance to joy, to life. If we're building our life with God based on how we're performing for him, we will never welcome something like this. Because then it's just like, well, there's another place I'm not doing it right. But if we're building our life with God based on his performance for us, we will always welcome this because it's saying, oh, here's another place I need and have the mercy of Jesus in my life. So as a closing application, let me just ask you, what area of life is God challenging you in right now? Maybe this week, maybe today, take five minutes with the Ten Commandments or the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 or the the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and say, Lord, search me and know me. Your intention is to bring joy, restoration, and hope into my life. Help me to see. Help me to see the work that Jesus has done for me that I can turn and embrace in him. And then finally, I'm just, this is short, just a hope in the future. After all this, David has this courage to say this. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. That's Jerusalem. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. So he's envisioning like doing the right things, but now for the right motive because the Spirit's worked in his people. And as we touch and taste the mercy of God to us in our own sin, what happens is we become confident. Wait, he is good. He will do that. His promises are true. Let me give myself to praying for that and working for that kingdom and moving to that because I believe his intention is to do me good. Here's the, here's the secret of winning the grease pig contest. You can outlast the pig if you don't chase him. Savvy, older children will know that the pig will eventually get tired, and so will the other 48 kids who are chasing the pig. And you can just wait. And after, I mean, there's a, there's a little, little, little seam you have to get in there, right, before the pig gets too tired to run, and after the kids are too tired to run, you just go lay on the pig, and you can win. Right? The Lord is a pursuing God. Yes, I just compared us all to pigs, but the Lord is a pursuing God, guys. He's tracking us down. He loves us. He is willing to let us be miserable if it leads us back to him. And when we finally turn around, what do we see? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Here's the wild thing about the grease pig contest. What happens to the pig when it gets caught? It's running for its life. It thinks it's going to die from these 50 screaming nine-year-olds. What happens when it gets caught? The farmer cleans it up and takes it home. That's it. Getting captured as terrifying as he thought it was is actually the way home. Getting caught by the Spirit is actually the way home to wholeness, joy, and freedom. And so we're coming to the communion table, and we're, it's a picture of being right back to our call to worship in Isaiah 30, where we hear these words, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and he exalts himself to show mercy to you. If you're in Christ, this table is open to you. We say taking communion in the New City community is a public declaration that I receive and rest on Christ alone and I want his Lord.